Um, so I had mentioned to turn to 229. Um, for those who had a little less time because you were still finishing up your evaluations, it would. I'll give you another minute or two if you could read the uh, text. It's it's long. The most important parts are for me, for my sake, are the first um, four verses or five verses, and then. Um, then starting verse 29 on 231 to the end. Not that the uh, different hangings and poles aren't important, but... They better be important because we've got to go through them a few times. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Why is it hard? It's a funny group. Yeah. I'll just say yeah. thank you to you. And oh. When, when you're ready. Yeah, whenever. Go ahead. Oh, all right. Raleigh wants to say something. Hi. I just wanted to thank Rabbi Schwab for teaching Mountain this year. Yeah. I know he's got a busy schedule, but good thing. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for studying with the Mountain School. And next year, Jews and Islam is the new class. Very interesting. So, so we'll Jews see. Jews in Islam. Jews in Islam. So that will be taught here at Bethel? We'll see. Jews and oh. Islam? Jews and Islam. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. It's a conversation. So. All right. Great. So stay warm. Thank you. Raleigh, we thank you with the BJE and the Melton program. Thank you, thank you. For facilitating our wonderful learning. Um, uh, I know this is... Uh, elementary question. Did I raise your hand if you were finished reading? Did you all get a chance to read? What? Did you read the English yet? No, yes? No? Most of you? Okay. All right. Um, no, I, I asked you to read it quietly now. Okay? Yeah? Okay. This is a funny start to today's class. Um, <laughs> is there something in the water today? <laughs> yes, something happened. I don't know. You guys are all goofy. Or at least to me, you're goofy. Um, okay. Well, what? Anybody want to note anything or mention anything? Yes. Well, I thought it was interesting. There's a lot, there's a lot of mention of women and mm-hmm. what the women do, which is not typical of reading tonight. Great. And one of the sources that I wasn't planning on reading because it basically just makes that point. It's like a lot of words to make that point, you know. Um, But yes, one of the sources that they bring is a modern, you know, a female rabbi who notices this, right? She's reading the text as a rabbi and she's like, wow, there's a lot about women in here. Sometimes without, sometimes it's men and women, both categories being equal. And sometimes just the women are doing things and they're contributing as women, you know, as, a, as opposed to kind of being somewhat invisible to the text. Um, if anything, women are mentioned more than men in, in this section. So she definitely notices that and brings that to her attention. That's interesting. Yeah, Jay? Um, I think this notion of um, everyone whose heart so moves and shall bring down the So at least three times that I can count there is this sort of uh, caveat um, that 
if you're so motivated, if you have the proper spirit, feeling, what have you, um, then go ahead and do it. As if to say, but if your motivation or heart or spirit are not aligned or not there, um, maybe you're not ready, maybe you're resolved, maybe it's just not the right time. It's a little bit different from the language heretofore, which is you are commanded, do this, or else you die sort of thing. It's a, it's a little different tone, a very different tone, actually, yeah. and sort of opens up, you know, a, a whole other line of thinking. If you're, if I really don't want to go to services on Saturday, and I'm just not into it, do I still have to go, or should I still go? You don't have to answer that. It was a rhetorical question. <laughs> but, um, but you get where I'm coming from. Yes. I don't think we've seen this previously, at least that I can recall, and it comes up three times in this, in this chapter. Absolutely. So there's something special and unique about this language of whoever's heart so moves him, um, which, uh, you know, we can, de de I mean, the analysis was excellent. Um, we can debate on whether the implications are only as you stated or maybe otherwise. Um, but certainly the phrase is unique. Um, it's definitely in contrast to a command, and there's no consequence given. Um, the you know question marks around some of the analysis that you gave are does that mean whoever's heart doesn't so move him that's fine too you know or uh, does it you know is it a, an implication about those who might not be ready you know for something um, and what is what is what does it mean that their heart shall move them what exactly does that phrase mean that you your analysis, which is a good analysis, is that it means whether, you know, kind of, there's another phrase in that's slightly different. The spirit moves you like, you're into it, right? And you gave the prayer example. If I'm into it, I'll go, and if I'm not into it, I won't go. Um, so, good. These are all... I just, I just, in two verses before, it says, you know, you keep the Sabbath, if you don't, you'll be stoned to death. Right. So, contrasting I mean, language. Contrasting it right, I mean, right, right there in your face. Right. Have you ever said that before, that whoever doesn't keep the Sabbath shall be put to death? I've never heard of that before. The, it does say that, yes. No, no, I hear, but I mean, just, has this ever been, has this ever punishment ever been laid out for not keeping the Sabbath? Like yes, before? yes. Um, it's, you know, capital punishment back in the day was normal, um, and it was reserved for the most serious offenses. So we think of capital punishment, if we think about it at all, is in relation only like human to human offenses that we find ethically disgusting, you know, whether it be murder or some times it's is rape still in some states. I don't know if that counts for the death penalty. Um, but anyway, like cases like murder. Um, but in Judaism, you know, there are certain religious laws that are also the most severe, and they also have the death penalty to them. Um, and it sounds, you know, icky to us because or maybe it just sounds like, but um, we're also moderns, and we most of us you know, either are not fans of the death penalty or only think that the death penalty should be used for things like murder. Um, but uh, it was a different, different mindset, different legal context. Yeah? Um, what stuck out to me was the, end, the ending section, where they brought, they kept bringing and bringing, they, they like gave generously, like mm -hmm. they kept bringing. I thought that was nice. Yeah. Um, but I also find it, I don't remember like which verse or which whatever it was, but we talked a couple of classes ago about 
like were they ready? Were they ready to to see God or be with God or follow God? And they were kind of scared or what or whatever, and that caused them to you know or worship the golden calf and that kind of thing. But now they're like showing like that they're really ready to keep bringing and bringing and bringing. That's great. Um, so. One thing back to Jay's comment that I'm going to relate, and one thing to think about that you <coughs> touched on probably intentionally and unintentionally both at the same time. The thing that relates to Jay's comment is um, in the end of the day, like you talked about the flip side, like whoever starts to move him if you're into it, and then you, you went to the other side, which is, well, what, what does it imply about if your heart's not, doesn't move you? Well, it sounds like from the text that everyone's heart moves them, right? Because the response is overwhelming. Now, it, it doesn't say every single person was giving all of these gifts. So it could have been certain people were giving so much and it hid the people who decided not to have their heart move them. Um, but the text, I don't know, I would say, you know, you can't prove it. It's not the correct read, what I'm about to say. It's just, I think the, the gist of the text is, is that everyone's heart did move them. That's almost like the miracle part of it. It's like, it sounds like it would have... And whoever starts to move them, and some of them wouldn't, some of them wouldn't, but in the end, they all did. And does that affect how we then define whose ever heart shall move him, um, and what the you know the context of the phrase? I'm not sure. The other thing that you mentioned, which you intentionally mentioned, the golden calf is a contrast. But I don't know if you intended to invoke the very similar language um, between the enthusiasm for giving to the temple and the enthusiasm for putting the gold in the golden calf. <laughs> um, and one of our commentators that we may end up looking at notices that the language is actually very similar and wants to draw a lesson from that. Um, you know, which maybe you're already turning in your heads. What, what, what sermon could you give if you've noticed that the language for the eagerness to give to the golden calf is similar um, to the language for the eagerness to then give to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle? So that's that's also something worth noticing and, and raising up a bit. Yeah, Ron. Um, I I did think of a point, but before that, I just had a, a kind of a silly question. Uh, where how do they get dolphin skins in the desert? Yeah, that's a good question. You know what? Those are the type of questions. Honestly, they're way. Of course, yeah, from Egypt. That struck me because there's no stores in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and they were bringing clasps and planks and bars and posts right. and sockets. Was this stuff that they built? This is Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. This is an age old question. Um, that there is no terribly satisfying answer to. The most logical answer is yes, they brought all this from Egypt. The question then, the next question should be, how did they know that they were supposed to bring all this stuff? And then sometimes the answer is, well, you know, it was providential when God instructed them to leave. They didn't know why. It was like a mystery hunt. You know, like they had a list of things they needed to bring and they didn't understand yet what it was going to be for, but God understood and that kind of thing. Um, are there possibilities that when they were traveling through, they did encounter other people's, you know, they did travel through other people's lands. I, 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 I would ask anybody who's actually been to, you know, southern Israel or been to Egypt, I'm not saying that the Negev isn't kind of seem like a wasteland of some kind. Like You're, you're really not that far from things um, as much as you think, right? Mm -hmm. You're not... 
it's it's actually not a huge a small strip. Yeah, it's not actually that That's big. 40 years. Um, so, no, no. My point is, is that my point is, is that they weren't in the middle of nowhere at this point. They had they were still like near Mount Sinai. They had left Egypt. They were still in the outskirts of civilized civilization. It doesn't say that anybody ran out and bought it. So I don't really know how to answer that question definitively so that everybody feels satisfied that they have a great answer for exactly where all these things came from. Um, but there are possibilities. I'm kind of a little bit, because I like to read novels, I'm kind of in that mode of like, you know, so you suspend a little disbelief. Somehow they had these things, brought them with them, acquired them somewhere. It's, to me, that's not the point, you know. Um, but. I, I understand the question. There's certain commentators that are very strict on these things. They want to know exactly, and they have to create answers for that. And so, but I don't think anybody can say with like full 100% certainty. Well, I know exactly where how they got these because the Torah doesn't say. It simply doesn't say. It simply doesn't say. I did want to say that um, I, uh, not necessarily to contrast what Jay was saying, but I read this um, in a little bit of a different tone. Yeah. And um, when I read, when I read, you know. If it, whoever's heart so moves them, uh, it, it's and not to put words into God's mouth, but almost like as if you were to say, you know, if you if you can, that'd be great. If you want to, that'd be great. If you don't, you don't have to. But yet, at the same token, there's like this really specific list of demands on, on how to do it. So like it would be as if I were to say, you know, you don't have to give me a gift for my birthday. I, what you know, I don't really. But, but this is want, exactly what I want. This is exactly what I want. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I want it from. <laughs> so I just thought that was. It's a good point. I, I never really thought about it that way. Um, um, I mean, that's a I, joke. No, I know you meant it seriously, but it, it's funny because it rings true, right? Um, there are times when we feel that way, and I never really <coughs> saw it in that light. Um, I always kind of saw it in a slightly different image in my head. Is more like, you know, whoever's, whoever wants to participate in the project can. I'm going to put a list of items here on the board, you know, of things that we need. And if you want to bring them, great. You know, and if you don't, okay. And then everyone, by this miracle, like, really got into it and really wanted to give. So much so that, you, did you notice, Moshe had to tell them, stop. Stop. The other thing is it's, it's an opportunity, it's, it's very egalitarian that um, you didn't have to have the skills of the artisans to participate. Mm -hmm. By everyone having the opportunity to bring the gifts, then it was, everyone was equal in terms of being able to participate. Uh, yes. Go ahead. No, I will say that's, I mean, people always look to this as sort of the fundraiser's partner, right? That you, know, you always want to have a situation where you have to tell people stop. But, but the underlying, often the underlying concept of a campaign is that you want to build, you need to raise the money you need to raise, but you want to build down to the, to the lowest level so that everyone can feel they've participated and you want to create those opportunities for the entire community to participate, not just a top level that can give the most. Right, so look, if you look at um, verse 21 on 230, it, it, it's interesting, it has two categories there. Everyone who excelled in ability and everyone whose spirit moved him came, meaning right. people who actually could contribute with their skills and people who just wanted to be a part of it, right? You know, like they both came. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, but in a lot of places, then it also mentions over and over again um, the skilled women, the women who excelled, 
Um, and then in verse 29, it goes back to men and women whose hearts move them to bring anything, right? So it goes back in and about Batal and Oliav, you know, that they perform expertly. And then, uh, again, every skilled person. So it goes back and forth between, you know, the people who are really the best at these things and all the skills and also the people whose heart move them. It, you know, it's interesting how it goes back and forth between them. Well, I think it's, yeah. it, it is egalitarian at the same time. Uh, the way I read it, which I think is really nice, is that um, uh, there's not a minimum that we're painting here, mm -hmm. uh, a minimum level of participation. If you have the skill and you have the ability, you know, by the way, at least some of that derives from God. Right. Um, we recognize that people are different, and those who do have those abilities should rise to that challenge. Right. So it's, it's not a but, it's an and, if you will, which, which is really, really very nice. Yeah. I mean, I would say, to me, the tenor of the, the text, I mean, God wants this to be a high-level project, right? You know, the people with the real skill, they're going to actually do the work. It's not like, go get Johnny over here, he doesn't know how to use a hammer, let him, let him take a few knocks at it, whatever. Johnny can participate, but he, he ain't building, right? The craftsmen are doing the building. You know, this is a serious project, but everybody's welcome to participate in some way, shape, or form, but it, it's high. It's the people who excel, you know, and they want certain types of materials. They don't want, you know, your homespun whatever in your tents, you know, to hang up on the wall in there. You know, it's a serious project, but on the same token, everybody can somehow participate. We'll find a place for everyone to participate, right? Well, we have a lot of positive comments. I'll throw a negative one out there. Sure. Uh, just for fun. No, I'll show you some of the negative ones. By equating uh, you know, the, the gifts to uh, the incident of the golden calf, yes. you know, uh, why, why, why aren't we reading into this that the people are giving out of panic or fear? Mm -hmm. Even though God said, oh, no, this is want to. But and why would, they, why would they be panicky? Or well, because of what happened at the Golden Calf, you know, look, when they, when they messed up, you know, 2,000 of them were slaughtered. Right, so... Or they were just a bunch of sheep, you know, waiting <laughs> to follow the next big thing. Right, well, so both of them are on the list of possibilities, right? One is, hey, don't forget the context, folks, right? This is like right after the Golden Calf, you know, God comes in and it sounds like a very sweet thing. Anybody whose heart so moves him. But a little bit more like what Ryan was saying, it's not exactly what you're saying, but it's like God comes to them right after the sin of the golden calf and says, you know, I got a project that could use your help on. You know, it's like, okay, okay, sign me up because I don't, you know, I just, you know, if you really offended that person and then that person asks you to do something, you're going to be like, okay, sign me up because then, then you're really going to, you might really make them angry then, you know. Here they're coming to you right after you offended them. And so maybe there's a little bit of that fear and anxiety that they're, they're running to do it because they're nervous about what just happened. Um, and then part of it is maybe this indicates this kind of immature sheep mentality that they have. You know, they, a few people said, let's do the golden calf, and they jumped on board that, and then Moses announces, let's do this, and they're like, yay, let's do that. You know, it's like whatever the next person announces, half the, half the people are just going to follow it. Yeah, that, that's not what I see, but, you know. Um, they were slaves. Their lives were completely controlled by someone else. And I see this as now they're coming together and creating their own community. They're building mm -hmm. a beautiful Mishkan. They're 
I can see why they would all want to be part of it because it's the beginning of something new. Yeah, a new identity. That's a beautiful but, read of it, and it's a very, in a good way, a classic traditional read. But that's like probably the best or main way to read it. But um, the the other possibilities exist. So you know, we like to we like to throw out the various different readings as the rabbis do because the Midrash reads it one way and then Rashi reads it another way and this one reads it another way um, and these texts are very rich and the richness is because there's different flavors in there and you're not sure which flavor to emphasize um, and depending on which one you do could lead to a different reading I think the kind of quote unquote positive straightforward reading is exactly that right they had the Agel they had this you know the golden calf um, God kind of eventually, you know, gets to the point where he's kind of forgiven them and given them a way to start anew. And with their new lease on life, basically, or spiritual life or otherwise, they, they decide we're going all in. And they're excited about it. They have, you know, a new, a new chapter, and God gives them a sacred task, and they, 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 they hit a home run on this one, right? They, they jump right in. Um, and, and, and the whole community comes together and then follows the modern jokes about this being the most successful capital campaign in the history of <laughs> Judaism and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and they really rallies the, rallies the community as they move forward. The, the only difficulty, and really the, other than the nuances that are brought up that could read to lead to different readings, the only contextual difficulty to that is that after we get through all these chapters at the end of Exodus and the beginning of the book of Leviticus, which describe the ritual laws and the meaning of all the things in the Mishkan and the training of the priests and both, we actually begin the narrative again. You would think that after a great new beginning that everybody was on board and they were like spiritually in the right place, that it would be kind of smooth sailing from then or at least a positive arc. And then it's not. They're complaining, then they got rebellion, and then they, they get to the Israel and they have the scouts who they don't... They, say that we shouldn't go in, and then they get a punishment wandering in the 40 years. It does not go like this, um, which, you know, is tough. So, anyway, just wanted to point out the context. Uh, Rod, and then I want to say one other thing, and then let's start looking at a source or two. Uh, well, moving on to something else. Uh, <coughs> you know, throughout the, the, the Torah, the, the scenes are painted with you know, minimalist strokes, you know, we don't know feelings, we, we know, we're given so little yes. of the detail of all these stories that are just so intense, you know, and which allows the rabbis to go crazy and, you know, just take it everywhere you, you can imagine. Yes. And here we're just building the Mishpon, the incredible detail of all the materials, how much, you know, all the measurements, and just... And it just goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. Mm -hmm. I always wonder why? Why is it? <laughs> why, why is yeah. it to be there? Why did you know? Every we put this together. Right. You know, yep. go, go into that kind of detail for for this. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Uh, again, this is not the answer because the reason I will try to answer it on one foot is because none of the sources that we're going to deal with today actually address that question at all. Um, so I'll, I'll make a stab at it. One classic answer to the reason that it goes into such detail is that all the narrative portions up until this point are to get us to the point where we understand how to practice Israelites' religion. 
right? So we're sparing in the narrative because we got thousands of years, and if you can count all the way back to creation, billions of years to cover, to get to the point of like telling we, the reader or later, who are we and how do we practice this religion? So then when we finally get to that point, then the text slows down. The legal sections, right? Mishpatim has lots of laws in it. They're pretty detailed too. And other laws will come where it's detailed. How to practice Judaism. Well, they, they need to know. They need to know what all these things are. And they, so now we're in the how-to section. The how-to section is going to be the details. The narrative section can be sparing. The feelings, the whatever, what he had for breakfast this morning, they're not going to tell us all those things. Because um, the Torah is definitely not a book of history. right? And it contains history, but it's not a book of history. So that could be one explanation, like a meta-explanation for why. That's not one of the Hasidic explanation or something like that, or a spiritual explanation, but in the context of what is this Torah about, many people would say the Torah, as much as we love the narratives of Genesis and we love the stories about Moshe, um, the main point of the Torah isn't necessarily to tell those stories as stories, um, because they're so sparing in detail. The main thing is to tell us who we are so that we can understand how we should be in a relationship with God and how we should practice our religion. And in order to understand that, you need to know the, the context to it all, which includes all the narratives. But the legal sections and the stuff where God actually speaks to <coughs> us and the how-to, that, that needs to be detailed out. Otherwise, we're not going to know how to practice Judaism or Israelite religion as it would have been then. I don't know if it's satisfying to you or not. But um, one thing I want to point out is that the commentaries that we're going to read today um, do not follow Rashi's idea uh, that there is no chronology in the Torah. In other words, you know how Rashi made that idea? You know, these, these sections right that we're in, they're not necessarily in the order that it says. Most of the commentary we're looking at now is viewing this in the order that it's written, meaning that the golden calf episode, you know, happened right before this, right? You know, there's no mixing around of the chronology. I just wanted to make that clear. Okay. Let, what I want to do is I'm going to kind of guide you through the first source, and then I want to spend time a little bit on the second source. But it's one of those things where it's hard to understand the second. It's easier to understand the second source if we learn the first source. So 235. Um, this is the Mechelta. Um, it's a Midrash, right? And it says the following. Why was this section said? Since he said, meaning God, make for me a temple, I would have assumed, and what do they mean by this section? The opening section, which is about Shabbat, right? So why does... All right, let me start, start over again. The, most of this section that we just studied and read is about the building of the Mishkan. Right. But there's the first couple of verses that talk about Shabbat, which we've already heard about Shabbat, right? Um, both in the Ten Commandments and in Mishpatim. So why specifically just a quick review about Shabbat before we start talking about the Mishkan? That's essentially the question. Did you want to say something? I was going to answer. Oh, sure. Do you, do you want to do it now or after the Midrash? Whatever you go, go for it. What's your answer? Well, I didn't read it, so go so ahead. I might say what I'm going to say. Sure, go go, go for it. Build, build a build a mishkan and observe Shabbat. 
which has priority. Do we build the Mishkan on Shabbat? The reason that the, the instruction is don't violate Shabbat is to, to tell the Israelites you can't build the, the Mishkan on Shabbat. Great. Great. And that's essentially the halakhic framework, the legal framework for some of these Midrashim. And that's awesome. The Midrashim are going to take that notion and they're going to drash on it, right? They're going to go one step, I don't know, further, if you want to say, or one step more creative than that. So what, right? what, what are the prohibitions on Shabbat and all the things that go into making the temple? Right. And that's, again, the halakhic framework for why the malachot on Shabbat, the categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbat, end up being related to the things that you do to build the Mishkan, because of this, that Shabbat is there and then and then all the work of the Mishkan. So, um, and that's a great legal understanding so that everybody understands the legal history. Um, like I said, the Midrashim are going to do a little, a little, a little, little thing to it. So one, one, one more than the other. But anyway, since, since God said, make for me a temple, I would have assumed to do so during the week and likewise on Shabbat. So normally if this hadn't been here, if this little section on Shabbat, I would have assumed that if God said, hey, make me a temple, make me a house, I should work on that 24-7, right? Just keep going until it's done because it's a direct command from God to bring about God's presence. So what would I have made then of those that desecrate it? Shall we put to death? That is in regards to all other works other than that of the tabernacle. In other words, the, the, uh, the uh, previous uh, statements about if you work on Shabbat, you're going to be put to death. Well, how would you deal with that? You know, it's like one of these straw men objections. Right, they bring up the objection to knock it down. What about, oh, it doesn't it say in the other places that anybody who works in Shabbat should be put to death? I would have known then that that's for every other work except for work on the temple. So the Midrash is presenting that most people probably would have thought if God gave a direct command, build me a temple, that they would have worked on that even on Shabbat. And that it's holy enough that um, you, could, you could do that even though that there's a prohibition and to the point of the consequence being the death penalty. That would have been if you were violating other for doing for something else. But for the temple, it's fine. Uh, so what do I... Uh, that is in regards to all the works of the tabernacle. Alternatively, the latter verse applies equally to the work of the tabernacle. What do I then make uh, then of make for me a temple? On all other days other than Shabbat. Right? So because this is here, I know that actually that's not true. That you should do it on all days other than Shabbat. Or perhaps even on Shabbat, it would be logical to say so. If the service, which can only be done if everything has been prepared properly, pushes aside Shabbat, certainly the preparations for the service, for the service cannot take place without these, should push aside the Shabbat. For example, if one of the corners of the altar was knocked off, if the knife was damaged, one should be able to repair them on Shabbat. For this reason, it states Moshe gathered during the weekday and not on Shabbat. This is all... This is why I didn't want to focus on this one. I just kind of wanted to run through it. This is all to say of setting up a little bit what Rod says in this kind of weird midrashic way, that you would have been confused about what you could do if it hadn't stated it this way. Because you might have assumed that you could have done the work of the Mishkan on Shabbat. Along comes the text basically to indicate that we should. Okay? That's where kind of Rod left us off, and that's where the first one goes. Let's go to number two. That's the one I wanted to spend a little more time on. Um, would somebody be willing to read number two? Eastern European, go ahead. 
it is possible that when it came to the tabernacle service, Shabbat was made was made permitted, since God's honor rests in the tabernacle and his presence frequents there. Further, Shabbat is a testimony to all that God created the world to all that God created the world and invented it from absolute nothingness. And the service points to God's providence being specific and to his maintenance of the world at all times by his sheer will. However, the construction of the tabernacle and the temple do not push aside Shabbat, for as long as the temple is not built, the divine presence does not rest among the Israelites, for it is through the tabernacle and the temple that the divine presence rests amongst Israel. And as long as the divine presence is not at rest there, Shabbat is not pushed aside. Keep going. Mm-hmm. But prior to the Israelites making the calf, there was a condition in existence. Wherever my name is mentioned, I will come to bless you, and the divine presence rested on Israel even without a tabernacle. After they sinned with the calf, they were no longer fit for God's honor except through the tabernacle, and therefore Shabbat is not pushed aside for its construction, and for this reason it directly precedes the account of the construction in the Torah text. All right. You might need to go back and like reread it because it's you know, kind of technical language and a little sparse and explaining itself. But does anybody want to take a stab at what he's saying? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think what he's saying is that until the Golden Calf incident, God's presence was with the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And as punishment for the, calf, the Golden Calf, God's presence only resided in the temple and the tabernacle. And and because of that distinction, it would have it might have been okay to build on Shabbat until until the calf instance, but now it's clear that Shabbat can't be pushed aside, that you have to observe Shabbat in the in the building process. Okay. Good. What? I have a little problem with it because and my assumption is always that God's presence is always there. And if it's only I'm only with you, if you build me this monument, it feels a little golden campish to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a good point. It's a really good point. Um, let's just, uh, just so everybody's on the same page of whether they understand what he's saying to begin with. I think that, you know, Larry gave a, a really good analysis of it. I'm trying to fill in some of the the spaces or whatever. Reading backwards from the second paragraph, which is essentially how Larry started, um, it seems to be saying that before the golden calf, God just dwelt in their presence anyway. Right? Um, And that after the golden calf, he's positing, there was a disruption in the relationship between the Israelites and God. So therefore... He says that when God was dwelling amongst the people, and God was around, if God had asked the people to build sanctuary for him, when God was hanging out also anyway with them, then it might make sense to say that they could have even worked even on Shabbat. Why? Because the sanctity of God was around them weekday, Shabbat, Shabbat wasn't as particularly special in the sense of the day when God kind of truly rested amongst them, in a sense. And therefore, because God's presence was always around, they could have perhaps worked still on Shabbat. But the presumption is is that the golden calf interrupted that. 
And then in order to bring God's presence back, they needed to uh, erect the Mishkan. Now, you can analyze that in a number of ways. Rene gave a spin on it, which is, is that, you know, that kind of sounds monumenty, that God was asking, you know, for like some sort of monument. And that's a, you know, it's a fair read and a good criticism of this uh, analysis. The other way that you could look at it is, is that this was, I don't know if you want to call it a test or you want to call it as a, you know, a group building project. The team goes out and they, they're fighting with each other and they, they lose the big game because they can't get it together or whatever. And so what does the coach do? You know, he drops them off in the middle of nowhere, you know, with certain materials and says, you know, figure it, figure it out. And if they do it and they get together and they do it, then the team kind of comes back together and they're back on the right track. In other words, is this an educational methodology to get the team back together? Or is this, you showed me that I can't hang out amongst you, I'm going to confine myself to the Mishkan, you build this thing, I'll live there, there's going to be rules about how you interact with me, we're not doing this one-to-one -one anymore, I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore, you're going to have to go through a process if you want to make an appointment, um, and we have some rules now here for it. it, it either way is actually possible. Um, you guys can decide which one you like better. But I think he's trying to say that God kind of pulled God's self out of the community. Once God pulled himself out of the community and then said, build the Mishkan, God's presence was no longer dwelling amongst them in the sense. So they actually needed to take a break for Shabbat so that God, God would have an opportunity to be with them. Um, and therefore, that they needed to understand that they no longer could work through Shabbat. This is different because now God's presence is withdrawn. So did Shabbat become more sanctified after the golden calf? Because Shabbat wasn't Shabbat, always Shabbat. I mean, even God rested. Yes. So I would say that these two things that are a little bit talking two sides of my mouth, I would say that he would probably say, this rabbi, that Shabbat became more important in that moment. I don't know that it was more or less sacred than it was before, but it became more important for the people in their relationship with God. But at the same time, I think that question also throws out a criticism of this interpretation, which is to say, Shabbat seemed pretty Shabbat-like before this. Um, to redefine, perhaps, what Shabbat could mean to the people because of this might not be... It might be an overread. Um, what I would like to turn your attention to, in addition to just noticing that, they're, that the rabbis are being thoughtful um, about what the golden calf might have done to the relationship with God and what the role of the Mishkan is in relation to the golden calf and the potential disruption of the relationship with God. That's what he's trying to play with. He's using the weird... The fact that Shabbat is mentioned there as an entree into that discussion, you may not like his analysis, but I think he's on to something, right? He's got some components here. But what I also want to point out to you is he uses this as an opportunity, which is a nice thing about Torah study, is that you're looking at one thing and then you end up talking about something different. Is that he uses an opportunity to analyze what the spiritual point of Shabbat is. Look at the front, the first, the first half of the first paragraph. Um, says, uh, further, Shabbat is a testimony to all that God created 
to all that God created, the world. To is, all. Oh, to all, right. Thank you. I was like, why does that not make sense anymore? Shabbat is a testimony. The same thing. Yeah. Shabbat is a testimony to all that God created the world and invented it from absolute nothingness. I don't know. Do you think about Shabbat that way? Right? Is Shabbat a testament to you that God created everything out of absolute nothingness? But that's what he says. That's the first part, though, that that maybe that God created the world. But this specific, like, um, philosophical comment that he did it out of nothingness, that it's like a testament to God's supreme, ultimate, and distinctive power. You know, we can't create out of nothingness. God can create out of nothing. That's a big distinction, right? Um, to focus on that, um, I'm not sure how many people focus on, focus on taking a break from creation. I don't know if we almost see ourselves in parallel to God. God took a break. We're going to take a break. This is almost like reminder, not necessarily about the break from creation. This is a, a reminder of God's creation and that he, he alone um, is a special creator. So it's a, it's a nice uh, reminder. And the service points to God's providence for being, uh, God's providence being specific into his maintenance of the world at all times by his sheer will. In other words, that God is still, you know, the force. <laughs> uh, that, that, the motive that really keeps everything moving, right? It's not, we are partners in it, of course. It's not that we have nothing to do, but behind all of our activity is, is, is God. Um, however, the construction, this is when he makes his contrast, the construction of the tabernacle and the temple do not push aside Shabbat, for as long as the temple is not built, the divine presence does not rest among the Israelites. For it is through the tabernacle and the temple now that the divine presence rests upon Israel. So if Shabbat is a big reminder of the presence of God in every form of creation, if God is amongst us all the time, then that reminder is present with us. Right? But as soon as God re- retracts his presence, then Shabbat becomes pretty much our only sacred spiritual reminder of that, and then therefore it can't be pushed aside for the construction. I think that's his claim. Well, I think it all fits. In one, I don't think they're different. I think they're organically part of the same whole. You What's the they you're talking about? The Whether it's the tabernacle or the Shabbat. Oh, okay. The question after the golden calf is... Uh, how do we establish sacred time and space? Since the last time we tried to wing it on our own, it went so badly. Yes, it did. So we've got pages of script to create a message that says, don't wing it. Don't, don't say, well, I think we should do it this way. But there is a script for this, and holiness is encountered when we follow the script. It's not for each of us to invent what we think would be cool to do. Right. Okay. Right. I think when we uh, go back to the episode of the Golden Calf, uh, we have uh, Midrash that it says what God realized because of that incident that he would need something like a temple so that the people could somehow use it to relate to God. they would know that God was, was around, yes. and there was no need anymore to, to build a, a camp to connect with God. Great, yeah. I think that's insightful. Um, what I want to do for source three and four 
is I'm just going to, I haven't done this as much, we've usually kind of concentrated on each source and read every moment. I want to pull a few things out of the next two sources, but not, not necessarily have to read the whole source. If you look at 237, um, it kind of analyzes a little bit in relation to what we were just looking at, but now adding the phrase whose heart moves him, trying to analyze what that means. Um, I like this, uh, starting with the third paragraph, but man may think, do you see that? But man may think that by erecting a building, he automatically confers holiness on it. Man imagines he's in control of the sacred, build a temple for God, and he has to dwell there. Blessing and protecting Israel. The prophets warned against this. They denounced it. Look at the bottom paragraph. God countered these fallacies. Uh, I will sanctify the temple. Man builds, but God confers holiness if and when he wishes. Right? So what's the idea is, is that whose heart so moves him is an indication that there's... This isn't like an automatic. Right? You have to be in the right frame of mind. You have to do it with the right spirit. Otherwise, God doesn't have to come. Right? God's the one in charge. It's not like uh, I called it, I remember, like, I think it was my second year as a rabbi here, and I had no idea that I was giving a sermon that might be difficult for people to hear. The theological premise of the sermon is I said that God is not a cosmic candy, candy machine. That if you say the right incantation, say the right prayer, God has to do what you say, right? But I kept Shabbat and I kept kosher, so how come my life isn't perfect, right? It's like, no. I mean, do you, is that how you, is that what you want from, you want God to be a cosmic candy man? Right, well, that's, yes. that's saying yes. But that, I was making the claim, I was making the claim that reduces God to a tool, right? I say the right thing, do the right thing, God has to do what I say. Who's, who's in control there? Me. God just, uh, I'm pushing the buttons. It works for me. Right? And I also read. No, it's the right? programmer. Right, it's the programmer, right. I'm, it's true. But I, I'm also, I also made the claim that, you know, we have to authentically create our own spirituality as a part in partnership with the, the tools that God gave us through the Torah and all the customs that the laws, right? You know, and I gave an example. Sorry, I'm dwelling in the past, but I'm, I'm, I'm venting to you guys. You guys are my group therapy. Um, uh, I, I said, you know, I gave probably the wrong example for certain people to hear me, which is, is that a lot of people want a frail Jewish wedding, right? When it comes time for their kids to get married, they want it to be a beautiful Jewish wedding. They want, you know, now they've learned about a tish, so they want, like, people singing, they want people dancing, and Devar Torah. And then when, you say, when you, the rabbi is like, okay, that's great. Who are your guests, you know? And does anybody know any of the songs? Can anybody actually give the Devar Torah? No, but they, they want that. You know? I've done that. Yeah, yeah. So... My point was is that if you want an authentic, freilich, uh, traditional wedding, you have to have some authentic, freilich, traditional people, right? And that only comes when you actually live that way, right? I mean, that's why when you go to a community where that's how people live, or, you know, that's what it feels that way. So, um, you know, some people are offended by that. So, and I, I understand that. But my, my point is, is that... I'm just happy to see over the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> His point look, is, just because you build the Mishkan... Just because you build the Mishkan doesn't mean that, that, that God has to move in. God decides if he's going to move in or not. God decides if he's going to, you know... And, and, and the deciding factor partially is in your heart so moves him. It can't be an empty frame of a, uh, of a mishkan without heart in it, without soul in it, um, without spirituality in it, which I thought was, was interesting and nice. 
And then on the top of 238, he moves on to say, the Sabbath itself shows that it is God who confers holiness. Right? And, it, and it isn't that we built it that makes it holy. It's that God decided to live in it that makes it holy. Whatever that means, we're using these anthropological terms that God dwells inside. I mean, I, I don't know what that means exactly. But you shall observe my Sabbath regardless because it is a sign between you and me. So we know that I, Hashem, who sanctify you, right? God sanctifies Israel if it observes the Sabbath and refrains from those activities needed to build a temple. While building Israel might delude itself that its labor guarantees God's presence. But no one can make that mistake as a result of observing Shabbat, doing nothing as it were, God alone sanctifies his people. In other words, the reason Shabbat's mentioned there is to let people know it's not the building that sanctifies, it's God that sanctifies. And we know that from Shabbat, which is when we're not supposed to do any of that stuff, and it's, that's holy. <laughs> Why is it holy? We're not doing anything. It's, it's because God declared it holy, and God, our observance of the Sabbath, in a sense, is a negation of those things. So, anyway. So, do you think, uh, to follow a bit on Ronnie's comment, that if there was no golden calf, there would have been no Mishkan? Yeah. Well, th- that, is, um, that is a premise for some of the commentators. What, what do I believe? I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, there's also, um, not faith, but destiny type of readings where, of course, we have free choice, but some path or road was eventually going to lead to the Mishkan, whether it was the golden calf or whether it was, We choose our path, but not sometimes our ultimate destination, right? That's how some people look at it. It's like, the mountain is here. You can either walk through the brambles, trip fall, it could take you 30 years, or you could walk very nicely up a clear path and it'll take you a week. The destination's the same, the path is different. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not All sure. Roads uh, right. Um, <laughs> it feels, it feels uh, not to be trite, that God sort of called an audible here. Yes. Saw the golden calf. Yep, that's how it reads. If it was just spiritual mitzvot, if you will, that probably wasn't going to be enough for this people. Yep. So we're going to do the same thing. However, um, there's some big caveats here. Mm-hmm. Shabbat, holiness, don't forget it's not just the building, it's really me who makes it, etc., etc., etc. But as an acknowledgement that the people still needed, they needed something. Yeah. What's interesting mm-hmm. is this is, there are several times in the Torah where it seems like God changed his mind or I'm going to go in a different direction. That didn't work. You know, I'm going to go in a different direction, including the big one being the flood, right? right? You know, um, and, and that, that, that is a theologically an interesting proposition, you know, because did God not know that was going to happen? Did God make a mistake? Um, or is this all like an unfolding of something that needed to happen in a certain type of way, and it was somehow part of the plan. So is it an audible, or is it just a part of the plan? You know, or is it, like I said, different paths to the same destination? It's hard to know. These are difficult questions to answer. What I like to focus on is what, is the, what are the implications of choosing one of these answers, right? So if you say God called an audible, what does that mean? What are the implications of telling the story in that direction. If you say that this was all part of an unfolding plan and it was going to happen this way anyway, then what are the implications for that? 
Um, so, I mean, I tend to be more on a free will side of things, so I don't know if I'd be as casual as to call it an audible, but I think that God presented a certain way of being. The Israelites, using their own free will, were only able to handle part of that and were not quite ready for the rest of it. And God decided that, okay, well, then I'll give them this plan instead. Um, as Jews living today who do not sacrifice or do almost any of these Mishkan rituals, I think we would be hard-pressed to think that the Mishkan and the laws of the Mishkan are the, are the end of the path. I think they are a tool or a way to get to an ultimate destination because we're not, we aren't using that tool and it's right in the Torah. So We kind of are because it establishes that it, do you worship centrally or decentralized? Okay, so we have this experience, we've had revelation, now we're going towards the promised land, we're going to scatter. How do we worship? How do we encounter God? And this says, in a time and place, tabernacle, that is central and it's a unified. But we don't do that anymore. People. But we're we're decentralized. But, but our model of the synagogue is still modeled on a community comes together for worship. So that's true. Uh, you can always find parallels, but I would, ag I would argue a little bit differently than you. Um, I would argue that um, in many of, the, many of the major categories or principles of how worship was done, we no longer really follow those principles anymore. And that the rabbis took great pains to connect things that we do to how it was done then, but many of them are on the face. You know, they're not in substance the same. We don't have the agency um, principle of a coin. We don't have the agency principle of a coin. That's huge. It's a huge difference. We're totally decentralized now. You can dive in anywhere. Anywhere! Right? And you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be the priest. You don't have to be the rabbi. Anywhere you can dive in, pretty much. Um, uh, you know, so those are two huge different... We don't sacrifice anything anymore. We offer words and prayers. The, Already we're like, those are three huge pillars that are totally different <laughs> from the way that Israelite religion was practiced in the desert. Yes, do the rabbis make pains to use quotations that refer back to the sacrificial system? Of course they do. Do they try to claim that, um, that we do our, our prayer services at similar times that you would have done a sacrificial service? They do try to claim that. By the way, that's only one tradition of why we pray. Some of them is because Abraham prayed the morning service. Yeah. So there's different traditions about why we do what we do. Um, but there's definitely one that tries to tie us to the Levitical rules and so on and so forth. But a lot of these things are, are very different. Um, and yet, we still feel like we're in an authentic chain to what the Torah says. And I would argue that that's because the way the Mishkan is set up and the rules for it are not the the end. They're, they're a tool that was used at the time um, for that group of people, and it lasted for a while, worked for a while to connect um, and to be conceptualized within inside the Torah. Um, it's interesting to me, I don't know if it is to you, it's interesting to me that in the Ten Commandments, for example, or the Ten Utterances, it doesn't say anything about the how-to prayer side, right? It's doesn't say anything about sacrifices or even prayer. It talks about theology, right? Our relationship with God. And it talks about Shabbat. And it talks about certain ethical and interpersonal laws. If, you don't have to, but if, if you were to take those as 
kind of the main, the main distillation of the principal points of the contract between us and God, then that might also help demonstrate that the exactly whether you're sacrificing or praying, whether you're you know, centralized or decentralized, that's actually not the essence. Now, I'm just letting you know, you could make a totally different argument and claim that the Ten Utterances or the Ten Commandments are not actually a distillation of the essence, and they're just ten out of the 613, and so that would totally break down my argument there, but I'm just giving an example of how you can read it. So that was a very... Did, did you follow me? Did that make any yeah. sense? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I was going somewhere in my head and you're like, uh-huh, oh my God, sorry. You're like waiting for me to stop talking. <laughs> I think it's raising uh, the, the, the issue that, again, I don't know how to put it out of the way. Did God, um, is it necessary for God that there be a Mishkan and a temple? In other words, this was a whether a necessity or audible, whatever language you want to use, if things developed, maybe it was inevitable that it would develop that way. But from his standpoint, is it is it necessary? Or is it a tool that helps people, maybe a lot of people, but the reality is that what he's really looking for is what God's really looking for are contained within the ten utterances and the feelings of the heart and the spirit and so forth that's really the critical measure. The venue and so forth and so on, if it helps you, great. It might not help you, still great. I'm somewhere in between, okay. um, personally. My feeling is, is that the essence is, is that we, we understand and feel God's presence and respect God's presence in the world. Um, and we do that not only as an individual, but as a community. So it's like a communal, spiritual understanding that we live in the presence of God, and that we live in a relationship with God that has makes demands on us. And there are demands articulated in the Torah that are beyond the tools of sacrifice it this way or sacrifice it that way. Um, so that's kind of where I go. I don't think it's saying, you know, well, if it helps you, great, or if it doesn't help you, great. No, I think here it's saying, this is how we're going to do it now. Um, this is how we're going to do it now. Not because the how we're going to do it now is the be-all and end-all of how our community might always do it. But this, for all of us today, yeah, we're all doing it this way now. Um, so that's kind of the in-between. It's not like an individual opt-out. If you look in the Torah, very few times, very few times, does it give these commands in the singular. It's almost never talking, well, Jay, you. You know, it's almost always talking about us as a people. Um, and so... It's rarely going to be like, well, if, if you want to do it, cool, and if you want to do it, no. It's, it's about what we're doing together. I'm just saying that I think that um, there is already evidence to me in the Torah itself that the way that we worship God or the way that we bring God's presence into our community um, through the sacrificial system is not necessarily one of the parts of the Torah that was meant to be eternal and forever. Um, and, and I think that the most ultra-Orthodox person, which I don't necessarily think means the most religious or authentic, but in mean, many people's head it does, um, but the most ultra-Orthodox person, I mean, how could they claim that, too? I mean, how do they practice their Judaism, right? And they, they'll tell you why. Well, if there was a temple, 
I'd be sacrificing again, which is different than me, because I would not say that. Well, Maybe you would. Well, that's different. That's different. <laughs> it is different. It is different. Um, it comes from a totally different place. It's not part of the sacrificial system. But, um, no, no, no. It's not sorry. It's not a sorry. You don't say sorry. Um, but, um, you know, whereas an ultra-Orthodox person may say, if there was a third temple, I'd go right back to doing it again. And they'll tell you, but the reason we don't have a third temple is this, that, or the other thing. And some of it is legit, and some of it really isn't legit. That's why there's actually this group of ultra-Orthodox people. I've been at the wall on several of the Shalosh Regalim, like the three major pilgrimage festivals. They come every year. Did I ever tell you this? They come every year with their goats um, to try to go up on the Temple Mount. Sacrifice, like the Torah says. Because they're just connecting dots. They're like, the Torah says to do this. We now have control over Israel. The Temple Mount's right there. Yeah. We should be doing that. You know? <laughs> like they're like they're like just connecting dots. I mean, it's not crazy. People think they're crazy because they know what's going to happen. They're going to get arrested because they can't go on the Temple Mount because of the deal that was made with the Arabs. So you can't do Jewish ritual on the Temple Mount, and also then they arrest them for violation of sanitary laws for bringing the goats in public or whatever. They find ways to like give them a mine or something so that they can arrest them and get them out of there legally, and then not like really punish them. But that's what makes them crazy. But their religious logic is not crazy. <laughs> um, it, it, it lacks nuance, but it, it's not crazy. Um, so anyway, I digress. All right. Um, let's, let's move to... Let's move to... I wanted to read... I, I outlined for myself which paragraph. Number four, uh, source four. It's the last paragraph that I really want to read. This is, um, oh, uh, Rabbi Pelli is, he's the, you, you sh- if you look up his stuff, he's a very famous, you know, 20th century uh, scholar um, who, I, you know, if you study Israeli scholars and, you know, Bible stuff, he often gets quoted. Yeah, in the second book. He's like a lot show. of modern Oh, really? I didn't know that. What was that? Oh. Like, he was a distant uh, second cousin of my father-in-law. That's pretty awesome. That's Yechis. Um, all right, so we'll start at the bottom of 238, and then we'll do the last two paragraphs. All work done towards building the tabernacle must cease with the onset of the Sabbath. That's basically what the first two verses into him mean. Time was made holy by God himself, while space may be sanctified by man. This is, Heschel talks about this too, this idea that the sanctuary is holiness in space, Shabbat is holiness in time. Here they're paired, right? First time, then space. Cashel makes the point that that means time is even more important than space in terms of holiness. The holiness of the Sabbath thus surpasses the holiness of the sanctuary. Probably picks this up and he says something similar. They're contemporaries. Um, the cessation of all work on, on the Sabbath occurs to make sure that even in building the sanctuary, the people do not lose their sense of direction and that the building impetus does not overwhelm them. Sabbath is the momentary pause for listening to our inner voice a break for a station identification, lest the turmoil make us forget what we had intended to broadcast. What's his point? This, this goes back to the sheep mentality or this overexcited mentality and then the focus on the building is that if they think like the Mishkan is like the big project and it's the most sanctified, they get really into the, so the building. It's like you could make the case for a synagogue, right? It's really special to have certain people in the synagogue who care so much for our physical plan here, because we like having a nice building that 
works and has this right spaces that we need and a sanctuary that's pretty and <coughs> feel comfortable in and everything works. So that's good. Like there's this healthy level of understanding the sanctity of the space in which we try to reach God. But if it becomes about the building, right? If, if people are like, we got to have the most beautiful sanctuary, and that's all they talk about is how beautiful our sanctuary is physically or whatever, yeah. they've lost the point. So if they get too deep into all this sanctuary building with all the poles and the things, and they get all overly excited, which is kind of what happens, right? Without having the Sabbath as the anchor at the top, which points to what he calls station identification, which is the underlying <laughs> value of what we're going for, then you're like, you're, you're, you're lost, you're afloat in the sea. I know that he's talking about space and sanctuary, but it seems like he's talking about ritual observance and those who, you know, that you, Shabbat overrides all these other mitzvot that you do all week long because you can lose track of, you get so wrapped up in which spoon to use for dinner, or which you're doing this, mm, or that, yeah. and, and it really, it's a microcosm of the entire practice of all 613, that Shabbat shakes you up, gives you 24 hours to go back and realize why it is you're doing all this. That's great. Um, I, that might have been part of what he's saying. I didn't read this whole essay. I didn't get that immediate sense from just reading what I hear. I really was focused on him talking about the spatial and visible sanctuary Rank second, that was like a couple lines before that. So I was thinking about this, but I like it. I like. I think it's a nice expansion. He'd probably agree with you. But uh, all true, and we keep, we keep hitting this point, but it's interesting that the text spends most of its time on this very elaborate mm -hmm. instruction and design and mm -hmm. all of this stuff that the public can't help but focus on and be enamored with. That's a good point. So that, yes, I realize there's an admonition at the beginning, and with the hindsight of, of with retrospection, the rabbis and us can look at those and focus on the whole Shabbat angle. But the Shabbat angle is occupies a small portion of the text. And I don't know what the better solution would be to emphasize the spiritual, but it seems like... Um, if that was the intent, I'm sure it was the intent, but that there's a bit of a disconnect behind the beauty and elaborateness and the effort, et cetera, et cetera, that goes into building this structure. It's a really good point. Um, I think it's a good constructive criticism of a, a spiritual read um, uh, and might reflect the fact that these rabbis are looking back from a place where they're not in the sanctuary anymore, right? So they're focusing on the pieces of the Torah that speak to the spirituality of their current practice of Judaism, right? Um, they're, they're not in either a temple or a mishkan focusing on these things. And so they're pulling out the parts that are the most relevant to them. Um, I will just say this, it's not an answer to the question, it's kind of alongside your comments and question, which is, Shabbat gets repeated a lot, as opposed to this, which is, there's a huge section about the Mishkan, but then, once it's over, it's over, you know, um, 
it doesn't kind of come back in the same way. It's not a repeated trope. It's like there's this one really, really detailed segment of the Torah about it. What does that mean? I'm not sure, but I think it might have some relevance. Um, and I also think um, that the symbol... I'm not... Hmm, I don't want to say this. Clearly, they think that the Mishkan that they're building, and from the text that we read today, they're bringing their finest and their best to this project. Um, this isn't the temple. I mean, it's a temporary structure. I'm sure it was very pretty, um, and they're using gold and things like that, so I'm not trying to overly downplay. Um, I'm not sure if I would characterize the description of the Mishkan as a glorification of the physicality, like how gorgeous it was. I, I, I do see it as putting their best foot forward using the best materials. Um, what I would say to the um, very detail-oriented of it, it's clear that um, to the Torah that the way the Mishkan was constructed has important symbolic, has, very, has a lot of symbolic importance. And the idea of the description of it in detail it's like when you do, you know, somebody who's really into cars and they want to tell you like every little thing. It's clear that it was important to them. And then they took pride in the building of this Mishkan, that they were attentive to each detail. Um, the spiritual message could be that this beginning of a new chapter, they're showing that they're connecting with God and they were really meticulous about it. And this represents a renewal of faith. Um, you know, or it could be some sort of glorification of the space and more of a concentration on space than yeah. we might focus on today. You know, Heschel wouldn't have written it, written it that way, but yeah. Yeah. Heschel lived in the 20th century. So um, I think it's that. I guess the last thing that I'll say, um, and I really will make this the last thing that I'll say about this, this is when also a historical or um, an authorship read sometimes can give you an insight because the priestly source, right, if you, if you want to break it down that way, would rightly so be very detailed about the priestly things. Um, and so the perspective, it's like reading about it from a, a lover of architecture. An architect would write it this way. You and I might not. Um, and it's like the perspective of it is from a person who's really into these things, um, and they would want to describe it in detail. I don't know if that helps at all. Yes, Daryl? Before tonight, I would never have thought it had anything to do with the Coleman camp, but I think it has everything to do with the Coleman camp. The Mishkan. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the gold and all this stuff, you're right. It was, it was all brought because, because it was the answer of the Coleman calf, and now with God's, you, like Mary said earlier tonight, was the, we, believe in, we believe in God now. And we're going to glorify God or glorify this as much as we glorify the golden calf. Very nice. Um, if 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 that's something that you picked up, the our traditions um, understanding that the Mishkan and the golden calf have a relationship with each other, then great, because it's a huge chunk of the commentary, um, and it might be another window for you to look at this through which to look at the the story in a way that you hadn't before, because it's definitely a major part of it. Um, you know, I only have a few more minutes. Uh, what I would love to share with you is um, commentary five, and then I would like to show you something in commentary seven. So if you'll hang on for a little bit of a ride here, I'm going to take you through 239, 
Um, um, I would like to look at really the paragraph the, near the near the bottom of two thirty nine. It says. Um, Axioms such as the Sabbath could be left to the end as a mere reminder of a fundamental principle. However, given the reality of this transgression, the golden calf, it became apparent that the axioms of faith had to be re-emphasized before there could be any intelligible discussion of the sanctuary with its dimensions of holiness. In other words, the Sabbath could have been something that was mentioned, you know, um, you know, at the end. Right, they could have just been a restatement, but here it had to be at the beginning because of the transgression with the golden calf. Because in, a, in order for this Mishkan to have any sense of sanctity or holiness, there needed to be something that was a spiritual anchor attached to it. Because after the golden calf, things that were physical, like the calf, lacked the spirituality um, that we need. So, if we regard the text, and this is now on 240, and this is the, the part that I really wanted to look at. If we regard the text we are studying from this perspective, then what we have here is not merely a restatement of the Sabbath principle. It is, in effect, the setting up of the Sabbath as a bulwark against any form of idolatry. The Sabbath becomes your response to the transgression of the golden calf, which had in at least some elements of idolatry. The formulation of the Sabbath now takes on a very special significance. The emphasis upon the prohibition against fire becomes particularly important, and we'll get to that in a second. What I want you to see is how he's contextualizing what Shabbat now means. Shabbat, by being put in its place between the golden calf and the building of the Mishkan in this kind of like, like as a reminder, as the glue, is to say that Shabbat becomes the bulwark or the answer to idolatry, and it's what provides the sanctity for the Mishkan. Because both are physical things. An idol like a calf and a beautiful Mishkan with an altar. What's the difference between the two? Now, there's theological difference. Like, I actually think this calf is God, whereas the Mishkan is to serve whatever God is, but a, a universal, you know, unified God. But beyond that, it's like, are we worshiping the physical in both cases? The only way that we're not worshiping the physical is if that there's some theological, spiritual um, understanding or framework for what we're doing in the Mishkan that makes what we're doing actually very different than what was going on with the golden calf and his claim is that was Shabbat. And then he makes an, another interesting observation or a point of analysis in regard I don't know if you've ever noticed this about Shabbat. I did do, did do, and it's not bothered me, but it's always kind of stuck out in my mind. It says about Shabbat that you should not do any work. And from that, we get all the malachot of Shabbat. And as Rod pointed out earlier, many of those things are derived from the building of the Mishkan, right? The things that you would do to build are the things that you can't do on Shabbat. Fine. But what's what's different? What's what? What other prohibition stands out separate from that, but is also something we're not allowed to do on Shabbat? Kindling fire. Not allowed to kindle fire on Shabbat. Okay, why? I don't know, right? It doesn't say specifically. Why is that separate from all of the other malachot? Well, this isn't the answer. It's an interesting answer. There is no doubt that all forms of work are included in the general prohibition against work on the Shabbat. However, a special prohibition against kindling fire has the effect of bringing out the dramatic imagery of that all-consuming conflagration in which the Israelites threw gold and out of which there emerged the golden calf. Why can't we fly fire on Shabbat? 
Because of the golden calf. Right. Well, that would be that would be a di- very literal direct. But the imagery, the imagery of the building of the fire, is supposed to remind us of the imagery of the golden calf. That's why we. That's why we can't do it because it's 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 a reminder of that sin. Could it be, therefore, that the fire is singled out for emphasis because it was fire that almost consumed the entire people, their future, their dreams, and threatened to put an end to their whole history? This is clearly drash. We're in the drash land, right? You know, he's saying that the fire imagery is, is that the fire imagery reminds us of the golden calf, which almost completely destroyed the project of the Israelites as the chosen people to be in covenant with God. It is as though Moses were telling them that when they constantly remind themselves not to kindle fire on the Sabbath, it will at the same time serve as a reminder never again to kindle the destructive fire of idolatry. Right? It's a drosh. I'm not trying to say to you that I think that that's the contextual, straightforward meaning of the prohibition against fire, but it's a really, I thought it was a really interesting, intriguing read, and it's like, I like poetry, I like art, you know, this is an artistic read of it that the, the prohibition against fire can remind us of things and it can teach us a lesson. Even if it's not the actual reason why we're not supposed to light a fire on Shabbat, it, it adds another dimension to that prohibition, that it's a dimension reminding us not to get consumed by the fire of idolatry. And you can even be modern about it and expand what's idolatry. It's not just worshipping a golden calf. Idolatry to selfishness, idolatry to materialism, idolatry to um, parochialism. I don't know, you name the, your, your idol, um, you can be modern about it. And that could be another aspect of what it means to refrain from lighting a fire with Shabbat. Um, I think it's a cool spiritual exercise. All right, I also want to look at number seven real quick. Are you guys okay? I know it's like three minutes past time. It's my last class. Is it okay if I try to squeeze something in? Um, will you forgive me? Seven. It's very short. It's a Gemara. Um, Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi said in the name of, 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 of Rabbi, can we read these verses and not shudder? Can we read these verses and not shudder? For good, every willing heart brought. Right for the Mishkan, and this is what I was t- talking to when I was re- relating to what Mary said earlier. For bad, all the people broke off, meaning their ornaments to contribute for the making of the golden calf. This Talmud is basically saying, hey, <laughs> when the people were sinning for the golden calf, it was one of those, everybody did it, and they brought all their finery and their golds. And then later on, in a positive way, we're saying, everybody brought all of their gold with a willing heart. It's like, what's the difference? It's a very fine, thin line with the differences. It doesn't analyze it. The Gemara sometimes is very, you know, brief. Right? It just puts this out there. It's like a compare and contrast type of thing for good and for bad, but they're almost the same. <coughs> right? Um, so Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi, I think, by putting these two verses together, is reminding us that our zealotry for certain things, depending on our contextuality for it, matters, right? What's, what's our end game? What's our context? What values are guiding our passion? Because they're both the same passion, in essence. They're willing to throw their finery into it. They're both spiritual passions, too. Um, but one we consider to be totally misdirective and destructive, and one we're we're very happy about and, and praiseworthy about. Um, what I think is unavoidable, I think, 
is unavoidable in understanding this Gemara text is that it's a warning, right? I think it's supposed to be a cautionary text um, about passion. And while we often read this text as, wow, it's the greatest campaign ever in the history of Judaism, and it's a new chapter, and it's, it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful, and it's great, and everybody participates, and it's egalitarian, and all these things. And I'm not, it's all true. Right? He's coming to say, yeah, there's a little bit of like, I'm a little nervous about this. <laughs> it's a little bit of, were they a little too, uh, little too passionate? Were they, were they a little, little too zealous? Were they a little bit too much, I don't use the word sheep, but are they a little willing to like, to go to this fad or go to that fad? Um, and, and, and we kind of see that. That's part of the problem of the Israelites in the wilderness. It's not like this Gemara commentary is out of left field. You know, the the guys in the Gemara knew the rest of the story. They knew that a bunch of people followed Korach this way. They knew that they, they revolted that way. They knew that when the scouts came back and said, oh my God, there are giants in there. We can't win. They're like, oh no, there are giants. And they're like, we can't go in. And everybody, it's, it's not out of, out of left field. I mean, they noticed this tendency. That tendency, by the way, is what kept them out of Israel. Right? That's what te- kept them out of Israel in a sense. They couldn't, channel their spirituality. Um, they were all over the place. They needed some grounding. Maybe that's part of what the Mishkan was supposed to be about. I don't know. That might also be part of it. But I thought it was a very striking Gemara that the Melton curriculum brought, and I thought it was you know, pretty poignant. Um, the last thing I'll point out to you, if you just want to do this at home, um, if you want to read in, in pairing to each other uh, 10 and 11, um, about why Moshe announced that the people have to, have to stop bringing their contributions. Um, there are two very different ideas about why Moshe had to do it and what the context of that is. I think most people imagine that it's he just did it because out of necessity there was just too much stuff and he didn't need any more. And it was kind of like an intriguing way of saying, wow, everybody did such a great job. You know, everyone was so generous. And that, that's really where we stop. Both of these do not stop at that, and they're, but they're both very different um, takes um, that are separate. So I'll, I'll stop there. I do want to say that it's been a privilege to learn with you, to study with you. Um, I hope that you got something out of the course. Um, and I know that you filled out evaluations for Raleigh, and she'll take those for her Melton purposes. At some point, I'm also going to just send out much less questions and information. Um, I would like to know whether you enjoyed learning from this curriculum um, in particular. Um, you'll vote with your feet whether you liked learning me. That's not what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> but whether you liked learning this curriculum, um, because we always have the option of using a mountain curriculum, but I also can just teach, right? So if you thought that the curriculum itself hindered or helped you know, my ability to teach you Torah, um, that would also be interesting for me to know. Because um, I've gotten feedback in the past uh, different different ways. Because sometimes I've used this Tuesday night opportunity to teach myself from other texts or whatever. And, and I have also used the Melton curriculum. So I'd be happy to know your feedback about that. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.